So now we're going to read to get, well, I'm going to read uh, today's scripture from Luke chapter 3. I need to take a deep breath. It's quite a long passage, but I think we can get through it. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eturia, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other ex ex exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he locked up John in prison. Um, you're joining us um, as we've embarked on a series through Luke's gospel. Um, if you don't know the gospels in the New Testament, there are four and they tell basically the story of Jesus, but it's history, it's not just fairy tale or made up. Uh, and so we're going through Luke's gospel. Um, 
And so that said, uh, yeah, let's just um, ask God for help one more time. Um, it's always good to, to ask God to help us understand his word, uh, his scriptures. And so let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you as well, Lord. It's just in the theme of thanksgiving. We thank you for leaving us scripture. Uh, Lord, as humans, we have the big question, um, does God exist and who is he? And we thank you that you have revealed the answer to us. Uh, You've revealed yourself, most importantly, through the person of Jesus in history. But even Jesus himself, as we'll see today, Lord, um, he trusted the scriptures and you've left us with these words, these scriptures to know who you are. We don't have to guess. And so today, um, by your Holy Spirit, help us to understand. Open up our eyes just as Jesus opened up the eyes of those disciples on the road to Emmaus and to see him more clearly and to uh, just have the strength to follow him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, oh, sorry, I forgot to mention um, the QR code. So I encourage you, uh, if you know how to use it, grab your phone and scan that and pull up the bulletin because we're getting back into using the bulletin. And on the bulletin, uh, there are sermon notes as well. And for those of you who are a part of a new community, uh, each week in advance, the new community questions will be there. And so hopefully you can even sort of, you know, listen to the sermon thinking of those questions and and how you might contribute to the conversation. So I encourage you to do that. If you don't know how to do it, you can just grab your phone, get the camera out. And if you, as you, you know, put your phone onto the QR code, uh, uh, URL should pop up and you just touch that and it should take you right to the bulletin. Okay. Repentance. Uh, That's the central theme of today's passage. And I don't know what people like better, a surprise quiz or hearing the word repentance. Um, Overall, most people react negatively or just causes you to, you know, it stirs you in a not so good way when you hear that word. And maybe you just did. Maybe you thought, great, here we go again at church. Repent, repent. I don't blame you. Now, for baby boomers and Gen X, the older people in this life right now, and older millennials, repentance, usually it connotates guilt-tripping and shaming into a certain kind of behavior. Now, on a side note, younger millennials and Gen Z, they're growing up in a culture overall where they don't really know a notion of repentance. And here's what I mean. Rather, they're growing up being accommodated And what would be seen as moral flaws or weaknesses in the past is now just normalized as that's just part of being human. That said, where Christians are guilty of guilt tripping and shaming people, that's on the church. The church certainly has been guilty of that in the past for miscommunicating and misapplying the gospel of Jesus. And that's not on Jesus. Because when you look at Jesus and his message and the way he interacted with people, the overall tone was grace. 
Jesus wasn't some motivational speaker on steroids running around and forcing people to join his fan club. When you look at Jesus' approach to the general population, to the general public in the Gospels, his was a message and tone of grace. Now, on the flip side, when Jesus dealt with religious leaders, the ones who were supposed to be guiding lights and living the example, it was like watching a master class in calling out hypocrisy. And Jesus did not hold back. So his call, again, to the general public, it wasn't guilt-tripping and shaming. He didn't force people to believe in him or follow him. And his offer was for people to willingly receive his definition of life, of God, of sin, of happiness, of blessedness, and to turn from the old ways of thinking and in willing and happy response because they believed who Jesus is and what he had to offer. No shame, just grace. And if there was shame, it was a true, genuine, graceful work of the Holy Spirit to see our need for grace, but not guilt-tripping and shaming as a tactic, per se. Now, let's be honest and let's face it. One reason why we have a knee-jerk reaction to repentance is often it's because we're fueled by a hefty dose of self-righteousness. If you're like me, we've perfected at those times where we're cornered the art of defending ourselves, convinced that we're the shining stars of righteousness in a world full of wrongness. From children to grown adults, we cover ears and say, la, 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 I can't hear you, right? In a word, we dislike repentance because we have pride in our hearts. And so bottom line, what I hope you'll see with me by the end of the sermon today is that in God's eyes, repentance is actually meant to be a good thing, a beautiful thing. And in the grand scheme of not only this life, but also really with benefits into eternity. So given the choice, don't you want your story, your life story to be redeemed? Given the choice, don't you want your story to be woven into God's ultimate redemptive story? If you want that, then a heart of repentance is essential. Just think back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, they fall, they sin. And by their own choices, they're pushed away from God. And yet God's overwhelming call to humanity since then has been to simply return to him, to find our way back to him by the path that he lights up for us to return to him. And that's what repentance basically is. To change our minds, to agree with God, and therefore to return to him. And so we need to understand God's intended definition of repentance. And so the good news is that it doesn't need to be intimidating. It doesn't need to be intimidating like, you know, your Wi-Fi password. Today's passage, it teaches and illustrates what God's repentance is. So I want you to track with me just three big thoughts for the rest of the sermon. First, I want to show you, if I haven't already, just our surprising familiarity with repentance, okay? It's actually something familiar to us, even something we want. God's heart for repentance and our part in repentance. And so first, what what do we mean by a surprising familiarity with repentance? And what I mean is that 
our culture, our society likes repentance when it suits our interests, when it suits our agenda, our purposes. Let me give you just two quick examples from uh, things that I came across this past week. Uh, I'm part of um, a Dawn Valley mountain biking online group forum, and I just catch up once in a while. And this week, a post that immediately caught my attention, uh, the caption read, ah, these electric unicycle riders are such unrepentant dorks. Now, the backstory is that, unfortunately, a crash occurred between, I don't know if you realize these days there's even, you know, there's electric everything. There's electric unicycles, and there's a crash between a regular mountain bike rider and this electric unicycle rider. So there's bad blood between these groups, and especially because it seems like these electric unicycle riders, uh, they seem to break a lot of the accepted courtesies and protocols on the trails. And so the upset mountain bike rider didn't just call the unicycle a dork. <laughs> he gave the full deluxe version, unrepentant dorks, unrepentant. I think this upset person is saying, here's a group of people who are stubbornly unwilling to change, unwilling to see the error of their ways. And really, maybe even between the lines, their character, who they are at the root is so obstinate, so unteachable. I also read an article this week very sad article about a daughter's scathing obituary about her dad. This is so sad. Her dad remained a terrible person to the end, and so the dad, therefore, was described as the unrepentant dead. So sad. Now, if we're honest and tender, I think most of us want to be repentant people, and we want to have people be repentant towards us when it's good and appropriate, when it's right. Put differently, wouldn't you agree with me that one of the most important qualities of just simply being a human is to be able to change for the better? Imagine, imagine a world where everyone actually repents towards one another when it's good and right and appropriate and in a healthy way. Imagine the peace and harmony that might lead to. To have that kind of world, what it boils down to, it's very practical. It's basically whether you and I can get better and better at deconstructing, breaking down old habits, and actually being able to build new habits. If true repentance is about changing our minds, and changing our minds that leads to a new habit, consistent change in, in behavior, then what it boils down to is whether you and I can actually deconstruct an old habit and, and build a healthier new one. And I'm not just talking about just taking bad habits and making them good. I'm talking about even the ability to take a good thing in your life, a good habit, and keep maturing and make it even more excellent. So let's call it just your habit-building engine. How robust is your habit-building engine? Can you and I debunk the defeatist attitude and prove to people you can teach an old dog new tricks, so to speak. So how about you? You might not be a mountain biker or a unicycle, electric unicyclist, but I'm cer certain you have stories of unrepentant hearts, stubborn characters, and people unwilling or seemingly incapable of building new habits. Maybe it starts with yourself myself, admitting that we're terribly stubborn and unrepentant. 
Now let's think about God's heart for repentance. And here's a part of the good news. The Bible teaches us that God is very interested in helping us, even empowering us to become people who can truly change for the better. Not because we can do it by ourselves, because with the good news, there's a bit of a sting. We're going to see when we get into Luke that part of the truth is we can't do it on our own. As much as we can build good habits in this life, we can't become good enough before God on our own. Now, a quick side note, whether you're just investigating Christianity or you're a young believer or you're a seasoned Christian, been around the church a long time, I want all of us to understand for the first time or go deeper into an important way to understand the Bible. If you ever pick up a Bible, you'll know that it's divided into Old Testament, New Testament. And the Old Testament, here it is, basically, I want you to understand, it's basically the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's the Old Testament. And one purpose of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, the whole, one way you could summarize the purpose of that first part of the Bible is that God is trying to get us to think about our need for grace. Through the law, the prophets, and Psalms, God is, is lovingly reaching out to us, communicating to, world, to the world, to, to history, you need my grace. You can't do it on your own. And I'm confident of this because that's how Jesus read the Old Testament. He, and if I had a top 10 list of my favorite verses, Luke 24, 27, and 44 would be in the top 10, or are in the top 10. Why? Because there, Jesus makes it so clear. He himself, the way he reads the Old Testament, he looks back and it points to him and our need for him. So the law of the prophets and the Psalms. Let's look at some of the major prophets. Jeremiah, one of the major prophets, talks about repentance. The Spirit puts this message in him. And this was at a time when God's people were at their lowest exiled from their homeland by a cruel, mocking, arrogant enemy. And if you've been following the headlines, I say respectfully, this time during Jeremiah's time was even a worse time than what's happening to Israel in the past few days. And so I'm reading from chapter 5. Run up and down every street in Jerusalem, says the Lord. Look high and low. Search throughout the city. If you can find even one person who is just and honest, I will not destroy the city. I won't send my people into exile. But then Jeremiah observes the reality, even when they are under oath, saying, as surely as the Lord lives, they all tell lies. See, something's going on in their hearts. They're stubborn. And so Jeremiah prays, Lord, you are searching for honesty. You struck your people, but they paid no attention. You crushed them, but they refused to turn from sin. There we begin to see this heart of repentance to turn from our sin. And they are determined with faces set like stone. They have refused to repent. There it is. Then I said, but what can we expect from the poor and ignorant? They don't know the ways of the Lord. They don't know. 
And they don't understand what God expects of them. See, it's a mind thing. It's, a, it's our, how we look out onto the world, what we think. There needs to be a change of mind. What a powerful description. You want to throw a zinger in an argument? I'm not encouraging this, but you can say to the person you're arguing, your face is set like stone. What a description. Refusing to repent. It's like dealing with a broken, stubborn GPS that won't reroute even if you're driving into a lake. But like in any worthwhile relationship, the greater point is that God desires us to understand his ways. Every worthwhile relationship gets that point. You're longing for the other person to understand you. It's no different with God. Every loving relationship requires a heart and mind at some point to change and to turn towards the other. And so later the Holy Spirit writes through Ezekiel, picking up in verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries, bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleannesses and all your idols and I will cleanse you. I'll give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. And I will put my spirit within you, causing you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now the Psalms, David writes this prayer, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and he has readied his bow. And David looking forward to that final line drawn, like any true relationship, any relationship that matters to you, there will come times where you kind of need to draw a line. And one day, God will bring all of history to a close, and there will be a great judgment day before he initiates eternity. And he's giving us our time on earth as a chance to change our minds, change our minds, and to turn back to him. So here's the bigger point that I want you to see with me. This is so important. The God of the Bible the Christian God, he works on the roots and fruits of our hearts. That's the message of the prophets. Something's wrong at the roots in our thinking and our hearts. And he doesn't want, God doesn't want just external good behavior. He wants a heart that's transformed. And so I hope this can stick with you. Roots in Christ, in Jesus, produce fruits like Christ. The God of the Bible works on the roots and fruits of our heart. Our Christianity is not just meant to be external. And that's the heart of repentance in the law and the prophets. Ezekiel says it profoundly. The Lord will cleanse us of all our idols. Do you know what idolatry is? It's good to understand life as the Bible sees it. And a really important lens is idolatry. Idolatry is basically just our, our ungodly attachments and motivations doesn't have to just be a statue or a stone thing something in our hearts our motivations our attachments where we try to make something else other than god our functional god and so god what he does he's in the business of dealing with our hearts our motivations our attachments and so i hope that a prayer might stir up in your heart as a response today, something like this, Lord, give me a heart of lifelong returning to you. Just lifelong, that lifelong, a big theme of my life would just be continually returning to you. 
That's the heart of repentance and the law, the prophets. And that's the opposite of idolatry, making our hearts full of God, his love for us, and then our love for him. And so we need all that to really appreciate now Luke 3 today. We come to today's passage, and John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus. John the Baptist is is like the opening act of a concert. He's not the headliner, but he's a really good opening act. An important part of John the Baptist's message is that while we are certainly called to return to God and repent, we can't do it alone. It's not just about trying to build good habits and become a better person. We need something fundamentally recreated in our hearts, a new heart, as Ezekiel said. Without divine supernatural help, without the Holy Spirit, we can't do this. And so for the rest of our time, let's go just deeper into our part in repentance. And I want to ask the question, so how? How do I live a lifestyle of returning to God, a lifestyle of repentance? That's, that's what it is, just really continually returning to God. And I see at least there's so many things here, but I just want to draw out two things that Dr. Luke wants us to understand about returning to God. But for sake of time, we're going to go just uh, only into the first one for today. And the second one we're going to pick up next week as we look at Jesus' baptism. So the first thing that I want you to see, how do I live a lifestyle of returning to God? I need to be willing to change my mind about God's word, okay? That's what it comes down to. That's where it starts. I need to change my mind about God's word. And and specifically, willingness to see that God's word actually has been working through all history. It's God's word that's been holding everything together. Now, where do we see this? We pick up in Luke 3, and Luke, he's a doctor, he's meticulous, and so he's a good historian as well. In the 15 year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of, and he goes on name dropping all these real names, political names, geography. And so what Luke wants us to take away is confidence. Confidence that this story of Jesus, it's located, it's in real history. That's the confidence that Jesus is indeed historically factual. And so even here, as we pick up in Luke's gospel, that this is historical. That God is at work in history. He's involved in history. And now notice specifically what's located in history. It's the word of God. The word of God. We don't normally think like that when we think of God. But that's what we need to change our mind about. That God is actually at work in history, in our lives. If you're a student and you're reading history books, that between the lines, God is at work, and specifically his word. And it's still at work today. From Genesis, all the way back at the beginning of the Bible, to Abraham, to Israel, to Moses, the law, the prophets, thousands of years until Jesus comes onto the scene, God's word has been at work shaping and influencing history. Can you believe that? That's the fork in the road. Are you willing to change your mind about that? Believe that. 
Now, this is a hard thing. This is a hard thing to change our minds in our culture. Why? Because we're full of our own words, others' words ad nauseum. We live in a time, countless podcasts and backlogged episodes with the, 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 the you know, unlistened to dots on them. To our streaming services constantly pushing new content at us to our growing information, unending information, and, and then we see that as our intelligence, right? So we become proud in ourselves as well. And this is all accelerating at warp speed, but all that down basically just to our pride, our pride, and unwillingness to listen to others, let alone God. It's hard to change our minds that God's word is real, has always been at work in history, calling us back to him, and is still calling us today because of partly the, the world that we live in today. But that's the gospel invitation. That, that's where the rubber meets the road. Are you willing to change your mind about God's word? To see God's word revealed through the person Jesus and scripture as his true word. So Luke, he points us, he's trying to help us. He points us to a condition, uh, a circumstance that can, an attitude that can help us be open and changing our minds about God's word. Did you notice where the word of God appears? Sorry. It appears in the wilderness. And this is not insignificant. You look back in the story of of God working in history, God meets Abraham, the father of faith, in the wilderness. As he wandered a foreign land, God's word comes to Israel in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. And God's word comes to John the Baptist in the wilderness. It's so important to remember that John, he's a living symbol, a living embodiment of all the law and prophets. He's basically now summarizing the Old Testament just in in his life as a symbol. And what God's word seeks to do is to breathe life, to breathe life into the law and the prophets, the symbol of John, meaning that's why he meets John in the wilderness. Because Israel, the law, and the prophets, they were still literally in the wilderness, their history, a sad time. Since their exile, some 300 to 700 years before John, God's word is basically just picking up in that wilderness story, that place of exile, as the word of God comes to John. And so what you and I need to see in this is actually there's something beautiful here, and there's a comfort here for you. Let that sink in, that God meets us in our wildernesses. God especially works in the wildernesses of our lives. I hope there's an amen in your heart as you hear that. God especially works in the wilderness of our lives. That's his MO. That's his way. And there's no shame in this. When you have a chance to tell your story to others, there's no shame in saying, I needed God when I was weak. There's no shame in that. Because let's be honest, we all look for, first, we all go through wilderness in life. We all go through rough patches and we all look to someone or something to help us when we feel weak. Why not God? Now, here's an important humbling perspective that we need to carry with us. 
through this life until we come face to face with God at judgment. Any success we experience in this life, right? God meets us in our wilderness, but what we need to be willing, this humble perspective that we need to change our minds about is that until we come face to face with God at, judge, at judgment, any success we experience in this life, it's really just an oasis. It, it, it's, it's maybe even just a mirage in the wilderness because it'll inevitably evaporate as we give account to God Almighty on that final day. But even that humbling perspective, it's couched in the greater comfort that God's word is at work. That's the comfort. God's word is at work, and he wants us to, to meet us in our wilderness. You know, when you read a, a good book, right, and on the back cover, there's a summary, and so it's helpful to read that summary, or you, you read a news article and at the top, there's a quick summary. If you had to summarize God's word, a significant part of God's overall message since Adam and Eve and since they fell, if you had to summarize it, it could be this. God's simple message. Come back. Come back. Change your mind about your sins, your pride, and return to me. If we had to summarize it yet again, it would be let my love for you move you to repent. That's why Luke describes, sorry, uh, John's message this way. Let me just fast forward here. Slides are out of order. And he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. See, John was taking his cue from the prophets, specifically the prophet Isaiah. And so Luke explains, quoting Isaiah, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley, try to picture this, every valley will be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall be become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. What a powerful image. You need to visualize that. Let, let me try to help you visualize this, okay? Let's go back to these. So imagine this is your life. Okay? This is how successful you feel. This is time. And most of us, what we hope is that through life that we experience more success, but life, let's be realistic, you have some rough patches, so you have a dip. And then hopefully you rebound from that, you, you get higher, you're, you find yourself better, but then there's a dip. And, and overall, we hope life will just be up and up, okay? There are high times, low times. But what Isaiah wants us to understand is how we need to return to God. What will really bring us back to God? What it looks like to return to God. What will happen when we stand before God? it'll actually be flipped upside down. And what we thought were high times in our lives will actually be low points. And what we thought were low points in our lives, as God look, looks back on our lives, will actually be the high times. The valleys will be raised, the mountains will be brought low. And where you perhaps thought you were at your highest and successful and satisfied and fulfilled, that might 
end up being actually the lowest point in your life because in your heart, you're full of so much pride that it keeps you from God. But what you thought was the lowest point in your life actually might be the most beautiful time because it's the wilderness of your life and where you're open to saying, God, I need your grace. I need your grace. That ultimately, I can't do it on my own. It's not just about building good habits in life. But I need fundamentally, just God, I need you. I need your spirit to give me a new heart. What's beautiful, and we're going to get to this more next week, but just as a little preview, what Jesus does then is what we thought was the lowest point in our life. When we place our faith in him, then it gets reversed. And as we're on his back, he lifts us. He lifts us up to humble. He lifts up to the highest place. And God sees us righteous and as, his, as his sons and daughters. The mountains are made low and the valleys are raised and all flesh will see the salvation of God. Meaning everyone before God were equalized because of grace. So how about you right now? Do you sense God speaking to you? Calling you back to himself? Perhaps that's why you're here today. Don't resist. Answer him and run to him in your heart. The God of the Bible wants to work on the roots and fruits of the heart. Do you feel great right now in this life? Then stay humble before God and use that influence to be Christ's kingdom, salt, and light. Do you feel low right now in life? Be comforted. That's where God's grace is made perfect in your weakness. Don't resist. Return to the God who loved you so much that he gave up his only son, Jesus, to take your place on the cross for you. So that's where we're going to end for today. But next week, we'll continue to look at our part in repentance and the great confidence and comfort that we draw from Jesus' baptism. So let's pray. Lord, give us a heart of returning to you, a lifelong returning to you. Like any real, worthwhile, loving relationship where we're willing to change our minds towards the other. Help us to change our minds about your word and to want you to, and invite you to work in the deepest place of our hearts. And that the good fruits would really come from that place your grace calling us back to you and your grace as we're rooted in Christ making us more like Christ pray in Jesus name amen mm-hmm.